the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and today you're listening live. I'll talk about that in just a moment. This is the Word to Stand On for Life, a radio program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions. Uh, it's what we do. We, we want you to love Jesus more and more every day, and when you have the answers, it's easier to love Him. So we'd love to do that. Let me give you phone numbers for your live calls. It's always a more interesting show when you call. 340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can also call toll-free at 877-630-KS. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile application. If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is using the free KSLR mobile app, and that way you can just push the call now button and be directed, uh, connected directly to our studio um, in the city. 340-9585. I want to thank you all for your patience. Um, we didn't know it. We couldn't hear anything on our end on Monday. Uh, but evidently, the, the, the last few minutes of the first half of the program and the whole second half of the program was obscured with terrible, terrible noises. We started getting uh, texts uh, here in the studio um, uh, during the second half of the program. Uh, but we just couldn't get them fixed. And yesterday there was such difficult issues uh, in the the cable line that we couldn't get it, couldn't get the program live on the air. There's nothing wrong. It's just, it's all been handled now. Uh, we appreciate it. We also appreciate you letting us know if those kind of things happen because as was the case on Monday, we couldn't always hear. So we're back live. Uh, that means Paula will be live in studio with me here tomorrow on the day, day edition of the program. Ladies, that is your day. Uh, we've had a bunch of the questions that, that I answered on Monday. Monday uh, that uh, people sent emails and texts to, to our producers saying that uh, they couldn't hear the answers because of the noise. So I'm going to do a couple of those um, questions again today. And then on, on one lady in particular, uh, Precious Dodd asked if, if we could do it Thursday when she would be able to listen. So we'll get that one for you tomorrow. Uh, dot and thank you for being patient with us. Uh, I also need. Oh, let me do, do this and then I'll get into that uh, tonight here at Calvary Chapel, First Samuel chapter nineteen. Uh, we're watching King Saul in free fall, and I mean in an evil, wicked, spiritual free fall. Uh, and it really picks up steam in uh, chapters 19 and 20. So tonight we're going to try to do, I think, the first 15 verses of chapter 19. Uh, really, really valuable and practical studies for those of us who are New Testament Christians. I need to say this. I, we're, we're getting text messages. I don't do text messages because I can't see. But but uh, we're getting text messages, producers are, and and we're getting some emails and some complaints that we haven't been proactive uh, in the Houston uh, tragedies, uh, that we should be asking Christians to pray, we should be asking for donations, we should be doing all these things. And I need to address that for just a couple of minutes. First, I want to remind you that Monday, all this stuff was brand new. We weren't on the air live yesterday. 
Uh, one person even said that I should be on social media trying to get funds. So I said, we don't ever ask for funds. And, and we won't, not, not, we don't do it for us, we won't do it for others. That's not what a radio program is about. Now, having said that, um, th- there shouldn't be any Christian in this country who needs uh, somebody like me to tell them to pray. I know that prayers are going out for the people in Houston uh, all day long, every day. This is a heartbreaking thing that we're watching unfold. Um, I've been told that we should be collecting clothes. They don't need clothes. Uh, and certainly Christians, and I need you to understand my heart on this, uh, if we give clothes to people, we shouldn't give them just our old stuff and think that we're doing anything of value. If you want to buy something for somebody and give it to them, give them your best. Go out and buy new clothes and new underwear and new socks and those kind of things. And, and there's plenty of professionals who are doing uh, the fundraising and the gathering of, of needed things. Uh, the Red Cross, um, Samaritan's Purse is active on the ground, and uh, we've worked with Samaritan's Purse many times in the past. Um, uh, additionally, the Salvation Army is there. Um, so just do what the people who know what they're asking are asking you to do. They're on the scene. They know what's going on. We can't even begin to guess. And I think part of the problem is that we watch this 24-hour-a-day news, and we see heartbreaking story after heartbreaking story after heartbreaking story. And instead of just praying for them and considering that enough, we, we have to spring into action, and we need to be careful. We're, we're not psychologically meant to take in all of this pain, things that we can't do anything about. Now, the pain in your area of influence, to be sure we can do things about that, but we can't do anything about those floods. So we pray, and then we offer to help. Now, uh, for those of you who are interested, this is what Calvary Chapel of San Antonio is going to be doing. Any money that we get donated is going to go directly to Calvary Chapel of Houston. That is our sister church. Uh, Paul and I go down there quite a bit. Uh, We love those people. Uh, There are a lot of people in the church who are really, really hurting. Uh, And so any money that we get donated to Hurricane Relief uh, here at Calvary Chapel is going directly to Calvary Chapel in Houston. And they're going to be able to determine far better than we are because they're on scene. Uh, how to distribute those funds, and they do need money. The other thing they need is, uh, they, they w- and, and now is not the time, but they will need manpower. Unless you've got a boat, or unless you've got motorhomes or something that you're willing to let strangers use, um, right now it's best that we stay out of the way. If you've got boats, God bless you, contact the, the authorities down there. Uh, they need the help. Um, our landlord here at the place uh, where, where our church is is coordinating, and he's from New York, he's coordinating this big effort trying to get uh, motorhomes and trailers and things like that. And that's just for the first responders who are staying on the ground, who are sleeping in tents, what little sleep they can get. So uh, if you have those things, then you can contact us uh, here at the church, uh, number 658 Uh, And we can put you in contact with the people doing that. But what they will need um, uh, once the waters begin to recede is a lot of manpower. Uh, If you are handy, if you've got tools, if you are uh, just able-bodied and can work, the the, the people there are going to need manpower. Again, we would send people to uh, our sister church there, Calvary Chapel. Uh, and and first we begin helping the people who've lost homes uh, in the flood. Just need a lot of cleanup, a lot of mucking out. Um, uh, it's just going to be a hard, hard, very long and difficult process. So they're going to need us to be there. They're going to need prayer. So um, those are the ways that we can help tangibly. Uh, we watch TV news. We we sort of get inflamed with passion because of the pain we see, and it's great that we're compassionate people. But there are people on the ground there now who know what they're doing. And right now, just more people. There's actually a curfew that's been um, instituted in the Houston area. Um, um, the, the curfew is because of uh, uh, looting and, and violence that's going on. So uh, more people down there is not the answer. Use clothes is not the answer. Uh, the, the Calvary Chapel in Houston is a shelter right now for over 200 people and 20 dogs. 
uh, and they've got the, the space for that. Uh, but it's really hard. I saw a picture yesterday that was sent to me of the street that Calvary Chapel in Houston is on in Friendswood, Texas. It's South Part uh, between uh, downtown and Galveston. Uh, and um, it looked like the Colorado River. So uh, just really, really difficult things going on, and those people need our prayers. So please don't understand. I, I, I don't do social media. So I'm not on Facebook soliciting funds. I'm not a texter. I can't see well enough even to bother. Uh, I'm not on Instagram or any of the other social media platforms. Uh, so if I have offended anybody by not trumpeting the call to do more or to get everybody else to do more, uh, that's just not my job. Uh, by now, if you've been listening to this program for a length of time, you know my heart. So pray for these people. Be willing to be available to them. If you give, give your best. And let the Lord bless you as a result. Okay, hope that's enough of that. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is um, our first question from our email inbox from Mick. Mick says, I was getting into a juicy conversation with a Reformed Christian, and then he writes this in parentheses, I know you say to avoid debates, but it was fun, with an exclamation point. And we were discussing the whole predestined topic. I pointed him to Romans 8.29 and explained that God chose us first, yes, but he chose us because he foreknew we would choose him. That is, by the way, make a perfect understanding. And he said, what? That makes no sense. Plus, the verse doesn't say that. Show me where you're getting that. Those extra words you added aren't in that verse. It says those he foreknew, he predestined, that's it. So I said, well, what is it about us that he foreknew? It can't have been a random thing. God didn't randomly pick out who would enter his kingdom. There's no other explanation other than what he foreknew was that we would choose him. Was my explanation accurate? I felt like I was on the right path with that response. Mick, you were on the right path with that response, but even better than that. And Romans 8.29, I've talked about it on this program before in response to these um, Calvinism questions. Um, um, it's so valuable personally, because what that means to me practically, and I hope to you as well, is that God chose me, and he set his love upon me, and there was nothing that I could do, no matter how hard I tried to make him change his mind about loving me. For those he foreknew, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. Well, why would God be patient with me if he didn't know that that day in February of 1991 I was going to call him? But even a better passage of Scripture make, and there are two places in the New Testament which deals explicitly with the, the basis of God's choosing us. And, and you picked one of Romans 8, 29, but the other one is First Peter 1 and 2. Listen to this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, here it is, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Now, Mick, here's what this passage says. It says, we were chosen, predestined, how? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God doesn't have to know something. If, if God was just choosing people at random, then it wouldn't require any foreknowledge. He'd just say, you, you, not you, not you, you, you. But he chose according to the foreknowledge. Now, the foreknowledge, remember, he lives outside of time and space. The Lamb's Book of Life has had names entered in it from before the foundations of the world. Not names that he just picked out randomly, but names of people that he knew. Names like yours, Mick, and mine. That he knew would respond to his call. The Spirit is sent out to all the world. Calling continually. God knows who's going to respond. So this idea of predestination and election doesn't have to be difficult. It certainly can't be utilized to, to change the nature of God. All we have to do is take what the Bible says, and in two places, it tells us the basis of that. Now, I can go even farther back. Exodus chapter 3, verse 19. God had just told Moses that he was going to go to Pharaoh and tell him to set my people free. 
In chapter 3 of Exodus, verse 19, he says, But I know that he will not let my people go unless a mighty hand compels him. So then God began the process of working on and in and later through Pharaoh. What did he know? He knew that Pharaoh was going to harden his heart seven times. So at that particular point, Pharaoh's heart was completely given over to himself. And so God then provided the mighty hand that would compel him to set the people of Israel free. Now that's what's important. That's what matters so very, very much. We were chosen, and it's a wonderful blessing and privilege to be chosen. But we were chosen not at random. We were chosen as all people are because God knows exactly who's going to be his. So, Mick, I hope that helps answer your question. Thank you for being a faithful um, expositor of God's Word. And even though I say you shouldn't get in debates, uh, if there's a little bit of light, keep pressing in. Thanks for the question, Mick. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from our mobile app, Anonymously. Pastor Ron, will you, I'm sorry, will you please explain the difference between preaching the Word and teaching the Word? It appears that believers are missing this idea. Thanks and many blessings to you for all that you do. Anonymous, uh, I appreciate the, the thanks and the, and the kind words. Uh, the difference in preaching the Word and teaching the Word, uh, at least from my perspective, is really, really simple. You know, uh, this Friday night, uh, Anonymous, I'm going to be uh, finishing chapter 2 of the book of Acts. And one of the things that it says there is that the people, because they were excited, they were saved, the church was new, but but in large part because they had more questions than answers. I mean, when you first get saved, you don't know Jesus very well. So you don't know what to do. You know you've got to change because that's the witness that the Spirit is, 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 is doing in your heart. But you don't know what to do. And so what they said, the first century church, they clung. And it was really, uh, I think the New King James says, devoted to. Um, but it's really a word that's very vivid. It's, it's a word that they clung. They wouldn't let go. And I always imagine Velcro, you know, pulling it apart. It's, it's hard. It, it provides resistance. Uh, it says they clung to the apostles' doctrine. That means they were listening to the Bible being taught before there was a Bible. The, the doctrines that we have clearly given to us in his word, they didn't have. It was coming by word of mouth. It was coming through the apostles. It was coming through uh, New Testament prophets in the first century. It was coming through those that God had chosen to be teachers. And uh, people were growing. The Spirit was moving. Well, the difference between preaching the Word and teaching the Word is really that simple. It's about teaching the Bible verse by verse. Now, that's not the only way to, to effectively teach the Bible. You can teach it. Uh, you can teach series. Uh, uh, Charles Swindoll, who, who has been a faithful Bible teacher, um, you know, maybe one day in heaven I'll be able to carry his lunch pail or something. He's been so faithful for so long. He's not a verse-by-verse -verse expositor. But when he's teaching series or when he's teaching lessons, he's teaching verse by verse through the passage of scriptures that apply. So he's teaching, he's equipping his people. Uh, I'm not as creative as he is, so we just start next week where we left off last week. That's, that's the way we've always done it. And teaching the Bible is not only declaring the doctrines of the apostles, it's not only telling us what God says to do and, and when to do it, but how to do it. Teaching the Bible gives us the opportunity to put practical application at the forefront. It's, it's what the Bible says, what it means, and what it means for us, for, for you right now. So that's teaching the Word. And by teaching it the way we do here at Calvary Chapel, verse by verse, we don't pass up any issues. When it's time to talk about giving, we talk about giving. It's the only time we ever talk about giving here at Calvary Chapel is when we go uh, come upon a passage where, where giving is mentioned. We can't miss out on hot-button uh, topics of, of the day that we live in. Uh, sexual immorality, you've got to talk about that if you're teaching through Paul's epistles. Um, but, but just pretty much anything and everything you're going to hit if you go through the Bible. You know, in our 22 years here, we've gone through the entire New Testament uh, more than once. We've gone through the 
uh, Old Testament, not all of it yet, because we only do Old Testament one night a week. But I can then, as the Apostle Paul said to the the elders in Ephesus, uh, when he was leaving for uh, Jerusalem, the last time they would ever see him alive, he said, I have not failed to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. And so that means we study the little books, Jude and, and Philemon and uh, First and Second Peter and First, Second, and Third John, those little tiny books that a lot of times just get overlooked. We study through them all in a verse-by-verse fashion. That's what teaching the Word is. Preaching the Word, and I'm, I'm not a preacher, uh, but there are times that I preach. Uh, preaching the Word is simply heralding it, declaring the Word of God. But there's very little value in preaching the Word to Christians who are already saved if in fact you're not teaching them how to do what you're preaching is telling them to do. So it's not just what, it's got to be how. And everybody who leaves a church that is being taught knows exactly. Now many will choose not to do it, but that's between them and the Lord. But when a church is teaching the Bible, what will happen is that people will leave there knowing how to solve their problems. They will leave there knowing what direction Jesus would have them take. They'll leave there knowing how to apply the things that were talked about in that passage. That's why teaching is so valuable. Again, there's nothing wrong with preaching, but preaching ought to be reserved for unbelievers. Declaring the wonders of God. Declaring the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Preaching to Christians, as you've heard the, the phrase preaching to the choir, well, everybody there, or most everybody there is already saved. You can effectively do the same thing by teaching and equipping. Ephesians chapter 4 says that the work of a Bible teacher is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to exhort them, to get them involved in doing the work, not just watching the pastor do the work, but getting them involved in doing the work. So the difference is really, really important. Now, Anonymous, you didn't ask this, but there's one other thing that I want to deal with uh, in this issue. Uh, topical series. The, 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 the pastors who, who want everybody to leave feeling good about themselves, want to put on a good show, um, those are crowded churches. But there's no value in that if you're not equipping the people to deal with the everyday problems they're going to face. I'm going way off here, Anonymous, but bear with me just for another minute. Every pastor is aware of a truth that is inescapable every time we open our Bibles and teach it, preach it, or or have these cute topical messages. Everybody who leaves the church after that service, we have three services on Sunday, and I often tell the people here at Calvary Chapel, that on the other side of those doors, there's something very evil that happens. God plants his word. The spirit is knocking on the door of your heart. Conviction is a good thing if you belong to the Lord, because you can you can go to your father and say, please forgive me, I blew it, and the answer's already been given to us. Yes and amen. But I tell them, they, they go out that door, and there's something happening. It's like there's an enemy that swipes their brain and steals that which God was trying to sow. And that means we have to be diligent, not only in hearing and learning, but doing what the Word says. And the biggest tragedy, and this is my perspective only, the biggest tragedy of the current church culture that we have is that Christians don't do what they've learned to do. They leave church unchanged. Now, obviously, I'm speaking generally. But every time you come to church, it ought to be with the intent, my heart is open, Lord, change me and use me. And if you do that, I promise you God will answer that prayer. But then we've got to actually be different by doing different. And that's the difference, Anonymous. I think the biggest difference between preaching and teaching is fruit. It's fruit. One quick story. I had somebody come. Well, now I've got a soft voice. I went into pool voice. 
And we had somebody come, and uh, his background was at another church in town where the um, pastor was sort of bombastic and very loud and one of those preachers that talked to the crowd and wants the crowd to talk back to him and those kind of things. And um, um, uh, he came to me after the first service he was here. And he says, I, I like what you said, but i got to be honest, you're not for me. And I said, well, that's okay. I'm not for a lot of people. But he said, I need somebody to yell at me. I need somebody to keep my attention. You almost put me to sleep. I need somebody who's going to give me goosebumps. Isn't that a sad commentary on our church culture? Anonymous, I hope that answers your question. It's the best I can do. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is, oh, I got one minute, so let's see if I have a one-minute question. Here's one from Ralph. How can I explain to an unbeliever why there seems to be two different gods in the Old Testament and the New Testament? Ralph, uh, we get this question with some frequency. Uh, the, the way you explain it is that there is no difference. Those who say there seems to be a different God, an angry God and a nice God, they don't really know their Bibles. It's the same Jesus. Read Revelation chapter 19, the Jesus of the New Testament. Tell me that's not a God of holiness who demands justice. 340-9585. You can hear the music. We've got 30 minutes left in the Wednesday, the live Wednesday edition of the program. 340-9585. We will be back on the other side of the break. See you in two minutes. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the Wednesday edition of the show, 340-9585. Let me do just a little bit more for you, Ralph, on your question about the two different gods, or at least the perception of two different gods in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, Isaiah 37 is a story um, that I, I, I like to use often. Um, we, we hear the absolute slaughter of Assyrian soldiers in one night. That was Jesus who did that slaughtering. They were enemies of God and enemies of God's people. God judges them. Those are the things we have to understand. Jesus was the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord. So we need to to challenge people when they say things like this. You don't know God. You don't know the word, do you? Because the Old Testament God is a God who is gracious and patient, abounding in love. That's how he describes himself, slow to anger. The Old Testament God is a God who repeatedly could have, maybe even from our perspective, should have destroyed the people of Israel who grumbled in unbelief at every difficult turn. And yet he didn't. He had Moses be an intercessor for them. When Aaron fashioned a golden calf, that's the same Aaron that God later made high priest. How patient is he? So God is God, and he's God in the Old Testament, he's God in the New Testament. His name is Jesus Christ. So don't be put on the defensive when someone challenges that notion. Here is a question from our mobile app from John. Uh, were the teachings of Jesus based on Old Testament laws? John, that's a, a complicated question. Uh, the answer is sort of, um, but, but Jesus went way beyond the Old Testament laws. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. You've heard that it was said, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you, if you've looked at a woman with lust in your eyes, you're guilty of adultery. So he took, in his teachings, way beyond the letter of the law into the spirit of the law. Now, if your question, John, is the Jewishness of Jesus' the teaching, I think that's very, very important for us to hold on to. 
Jesus came to the lost house of Israel. He didn't come to Gentiles. He came to Israel. His message was Jewish in its entirety. And he came to fulfill those Old Testament laws, not only the letter, but the spirit. For one reason, one reason only, because only a perfect man, completely fulfilling both the letter and the spirit of the law, could die for the sins of imperfect men. And that's what Jesus came to do. So his teachings had their foundation in Old Testament law. But he also gave us tremendous insight into God's heart about those teachings, the purpose, the motivation of those things. So his teachings were founded on the Old Testament laws, but went way beyond the Old Testament laws and taught us exactly how good we have to be in order to be saved without him. So I hope that answers your question, John. Thank you. Let's go to Jimmy on line one. Jimmy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hello. Uh, hey, um, the wages of sin is death, right? Yes. Can you hear me? I can hear you, Jimmy. I uh, said yes. Oh. Jimmy, you know, I can hear you there. What's up? Well, I'm a sinner. I've fallen. I've fallen. I've 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 and I just, I just want to come to it. Yeah. Jim, Jimmy, listen, I want you to listen, I want you to listen really closely. Let the Lord kind of put his arms around you and, and, and hug you. Um, we're told in the New Testament that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jimmy, you've called before um, on the program. I know you're a believer. Um, the condemnation that you're experiencing is an attack from the enemy who wants to destroy you. Now, you're right. The wages of sin is death. Um, that's why Jesus had to die. He died so that you and I could live. And whatever you've done, however your disobedience has manifested itself, 1 John 1, nine provides the answer. If you confess your sin... Now, Jimmy, that word confess means to agree with God about what sin is. Agree with God about your sin. God, um, you mentioned you've ruined your body with smoking. Uh, the Lord has been talking to you about this for a long time. Lord, I've been disobedient. Please forgive me. And then the rest of the verse promises that he is faithful to forgive, not only to forgive, but to purify you from all unrighteousness. So with a sincere heart, Jimmy, you say, Lord, I've been disobedient in this area, that area, another area, and I don't want to do that anymore. Please forgive me. And instantly, your standing before God is perfect. All beautiful you are, my darling. There is no flaw in you. And Jimmy, what you're struggling with is the same thing the Apostle Paul struggled with, not smoking necessarily or the other areas of your disobedience. His and yours are different, to be sure. But, but, but he struggled with this. What I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. And here's his conclusion. Oh, wretched man that I am. In other words, I need help. Who can rescue me from this body of death? And then in chapter 7, verse 25, he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul's rescuer, Jimmy, and your rescuer and my rescuer are exactly the same. His name is Jesus. And he's paid for your sins. He's paid the price for your disobedience. And all you have to do is, by faith, say, thank you, Lord. And then let the Spirit of God come flooding into your heart and walk with him. The next time, and I'm just going to use smoking because you used it. It's not a sin. It's a sin for some because God's spoken to people about it. The next time you 
are tempted to have a cigarette, just remember you're right there with Jesus. And you won't do the same thing or make the same choices that you made when you're not with him. And make no mistake, Jimmy, the enemy is trying to condemn you because he wants you separated from separated from Jesus. He wants you to feel like Jesus isn't there. I'm telling you, based on the, the authority of the Word of God, that Jesus is never going to leave you or forsake you. And if your fellowship is broken because of your disobedience, a simple repentance and apology fixes that. And Jesus will be right there all over again. And his response to you will be, Jimmy, I love you, I always have, and I always will. So thank you for saying you're sorry. Now let's get busy together again. Jimmy, spend more time with Jesus. Spend more time in your word than you do with the things that cause the disobedience. Spend more time with Jesus than you do with your own thoughts. Spend more time seeking the will of the Holy Spirit for your life. And it changes everything. That's the practical value of what God has done for us. The wages of sin indeed is death. And Jesus died, Jimmy, so that you could live. God bless you, Jimmy. I'm going to pray real quickly and then uh, um, we'll go on to the next question. Uh, Father, I lift Jimmy to you uh, now. Uh, I, I can always tell when the enemy is pounding. Um, I can always tell when the lies are being screamed in our ears. And Jimmy's a man who's being told he's condemned. But you were condemned so that he could live. And I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, Jimmy would spring to life right now, Lord, and bring you honor and glory, putting a smile on your face. Convince him of your love, Lord. Amen. Thank you for the call, Jimmy. Thank you very, very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is a question from Lewis. Now, this is one of the questions that I answered on Monday, uh, but but couldn't be heard because of the technical difficulties. By the way, we're told the first half went fine, and there's no noise in the system, so looks like we're good again. This one is from our email inbox. How can I respond when someone asks, how can you say no one ever said life as a Christian would be easy when Jesus said so in Matthew chapter 11, verse 30? Also, I've heard people say you don't need to rejoice or be happy when you're going through a trial. But doesn't God tell us in James 1 that we're to consider trials pure joy? Um, Let me take the second question first, Lewis. Yes, he does tell us, not only in James uh, but Peter, Peter says that that these trials that we're we're dealing with are more precious to us than gold. Um, um, when, when we're suffering, it's it's a gift that's given to us by the Lord uh, because we're we're close to Him. Uh, we're to be content in all circumstances. Uh, we're, we're to consider these things of great value to the Christian. However, we don't rejoice because of a trial. We rejoice that Jesus is with us in the trial. That's a very important distinction, Lewis. Uh, We rejoice because Jesus is in the trial with us. It is one of the most difficult things, and that's why we have to keep our minds on heaven uh, and our hearts on heaven. Because when you're in a trial, when things are going hard for you, it's hard to think about anything else. You should see, Lewis, the people we have here at Calvary Chapel who are really fighting, really, really fighting physical problems that cause them great, great pain. And that pain can consume us. The enemy who has no mercy is going to try to use that pain to consume us. But here's what happens when we focus on Jesus. We encounter, and this is kind of a plug for my study this coming Sunday at Calvary Chapel, I consider that our present sufferings aren't worthy to be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. And when you get close to Jesus in your suffering, because in his presence is the fullness of joy, David writes that, then we learn to have joy even when it's impossible from a worldly perspective to have joy. Not be happy. Don't look at it like it's a fun thing. But we can have joy in the middle of our trials. And it's in those times when you draw so close to him in the middle of your suffering that I promise you, you can experience almost the physical hand of God around you saying, I'm here with you. 
I know what you're going through. I know how hard it is. And believe me, Jesus knows how hard it is because he experienced it. So that's how we deal with trials. The other question that we deal with, uh, Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, that doesn't mean that life would be easy. Nobody ever said, most notably, Jesus never said life would be easy. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation. He said, they hated me, they'll hate you. They insulted me, they'll insult you. That's not easy. So that's not what Jesus meant. What he meant was when he's carrying your burdens, then it becomes easier. His burden is easy and light. You know, I think a, a great way to, to understand this, Lewis, is that, that Jesus uh, on the cross at Calvary offered us a great business deal, um, a business deal for eternal life, uh, I'll take your sin, your filth, you take my perfection. Now, n- nobody should say no to that. But when it's day-to-day suffering, he says, here's what I want you to do. He said, be anxious for nothing. Tomorrow has enough of its own to worry about. He said, when you're worried, when you're going through something that's difficult, how about we swap burdens? I'll carry yours, and you carry mine. Well, that's what he just said in Matthew chapter 11. Two verses earlier, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see, Jesus said that there's rest for us in the middle of the difficulty. He didn't say there wouldn't be difficulty. So nobody ever said life would be easy. One of the reasons that it so infuriates me when preachers from the prosperity gospel, God will bless you. He wants you to be happy. He wants you to be rich. He wants you to be healthy. If you only have enough faith, it's because it flies into the face of all of the New Testament's teaching. So, Lewis, that's how you respond. Jesus never said life as a Christian would be easy. He didn't address it other than to say the exact opposite. In this world, you will have tribulation. People will hate you. I've come to divide families. I mean, there's many, many other comments that would indicate that he never said life would be easy. So I hope that answers your question, Lewis. Thank you for your patience. I'm sorry for the problems that we had on Friday, on uh, Tuesday, or Monday's program. Here is a question from Ed. Pastor Ron. Oh boy, I didn't see this one earlier. Has your church signed on to the Nashville Statement on Sexuality? And if not, why not? I think we have to take a stand before it's too late. Uh, Ed, the the uh, the Nashville Statement. This is for everybody in the in the audience. It's uh, getting a lot of news right now. It's a bunch of reformed guys, um, many of whom are in the Southern Baptist Convention, who have come together. And why we humans think we need to do this, but we have uh, been given a statement that, that they say once and for all codifies Christian thinking on human sexuality. We don't need a statement. No, I have not signed on to it. No, I will not sign on to it. What I'm going to do, Ed, is continue to teach the Bible. And here's the problem. A lot of the people who signed on it have been divorced. There's no statement on marriage and how Christians are perverting it. I understand the need for clear Bible teaching in the area of human sexuality because it's being so conflated in the world that we live in. I understand that there is an attack um, um, by the world that we live in to, to try to make anything and everything acceptable, whatever somebody feels is okay. But we don't deal with that with a statement. We deal with that with solid Bible teaching. We deal with that by loving those who consider us enemies. We don't draw a line in the sand and say, get on our side or go to hell. And that's what statements like this are doing. So, Ed, I don't know if your reference is to me personally uh, or or just the church at large. If you want to take a stand before it's too late, the way to do it is to go out and share Jesus. The statement that should have been made out of Nashville and every other church in this country is that Jesus loves those whose lifestyles offend him. 
saying it that way, I don't know why it's so hard for us to love people who offend us. But our message, our statement should be that Jesus loves you. He died for sinners. He died for you. And we're so worried about cleaning people up before Jesus catches them that we've missed the whole point. It's love that wins the human heart. And love isn't acceptance. Love isn't letting somebody do whatever it is they want to do and telling them it's going to be okay. It's not. Love is telling the truth. But telling the truth because you care about the eternal destination of people. We, we need to remember that people who offend God are the objects of our ministry. It's why he's kept us here. And so this silliness, this politically correct silliness, we have to get together, we have to have a statement. If those men would just teach their Bibles to the people God brings in front of them, and then love people that God brings in front of them while they're out and about, instead of deciding that they need to get together and spend some time coming up with a declarative statement about human sexuality, because God has already made that declarative statement. So we take a stand, but our stand has to be for love. Our stand has to be for Jesus. And anything that we do that automatically makes people feel excluded. Now again, the gospel is an offense, and I understand that we're going to offend people when we tell them the truth in love. But see, if you tell the truth in love, then their offense then is between them and God. We take it so personally. It's like we, our skin is so thin. And it would be far better for every one of those pastors who've signed it Again, most of them are reformed, by the way, if I didn't say that earlier. It would be so much better if every one of those pastors would open the Bible and talk to their people first about their sin and then equip them to go out and minister the good news of Jesus Christ to people who don't know Jesus or have nothing to do with Jesus. This isn't a cultural battle. This is a spiritual battle. Nashville statements or any other statements aren't going to do much to fix it. So, Ed, the answer is no. You want to take a stand? Go share Jesus with those whose sexual lifestyles differ from what the Bible says. Tell them Jesus loves them. Convince them. And the only way you can convince them is by you loving them. Whether they love you back or not is irrelevant. The only way you can convince them is by loving them. Here's a question from Alvin. I think we're inside five minutes here, so uh, no time for calls. Alvin says, Pastor Ron, how do you watch the news and stay current with what's going on in our country without getting really angry? Things like this weekend's violence by uh, Atifa at a pro-Trump uh, rally. Um, uh, Alvin, I, I don't watch it very much. Uh, I've been watching it a little bit more. Uh, Paul and I have at home, uh, because of the flood, we've got people that we really love and care about uh, in the Houston, and, and now the storm is going to Beaumont. We've got really good friends in, in the Calvary Chapel in Beaumont, so we know people, so there's a personal investment. But the truth is, the news is, is so slanted. Uh, I've told our church to stop watching Fox News if it makes you angry. Period. And, and um, you know, Paul writes to the, the Hebrews, throw off everything that hinders. If you get angry, then what's causing that anger is a hindrance to your walk with Jesus. And so sometimes you've got to say no. You've got to be self-controlled. I said this to an earlier question, but I want to repeat it here. We're not psychologically built to take on the problems of the world. 24-hour news cycles have been devastating in terms of, of uh, the emotional impact it's had on even the people of God. Those are things that you can't do anything about. I mean, we can vote to be sure we should, but the things that you can't do anything about, what's the point? What's the value of getting angry about it? Get your nose out of the news and get your nose in the Word of God. It's filled with good news. It's filled with answers. It's filled with practical solutions. There's nothing on Fox News. 
I'm a conservative guy, but there's nothing on Fox News, people yelling at each other. There's nothing of value. Alvin, let me extend this to your Facebook feeds and your Twitter feed. There's simply no value of people typing and screaming at each other. There's no value in winning an argument. Facebook is uh, it's so destructive. And I'm talking about to Christians, Christians in this church. They argue, they debate. There's no love in that. It, it stirs our flesh instead of us stirring our spirit. And we need to be disciplined enough to put down the things that have no eternal value. I say that as a former news junkie. I was a journalism major in college. I used to read five, six newspapers a day. I always had to be informed. I always had to know what was going on. And it's just been in the last year or so that I stopped taking a newspaper at all. I get the news that I need online, but I spend only enough time to know what I need to know. And that gives me a lot more time to spend on what I know the answer is, what I know the people need. And his name is Jesus. That's got to be our focus. So Alvin, discipline yourself. Thanks for tuning in. Again, we'll be live in studio tomorrow, the date day edition of the program. Tonight, 1 Samuel chapter 19 here at Calvary Chapel, San Antonio. May the Lord bless you and keep you ladies. Tomorrow, Paula will be ready. Any questions, you need any encouragement, please call. God bless you. We'll see you tomorrow at 4 o'clock. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.